Welcome to Ask Peggy About Your Finances, because prosperity is so much more than money. Brought to you by writer, speaker, and certified financial planner, Peggy Doviak. Hello, and welcome to the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. My name is Peggy Doviak, and I am a certified financial planner practitioner. And this week's show is the best of the Ask Peggy questions. So you're going to listen to questions that people have asked me. I provide answers. Remember, they're educational, so you need to ask your certified financial planner practitioner if they would work for you. And you can submit questions to my Facebook page, Ask Peggy. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Ask Peggy segment of the show. And again, in full disclosure, I have to admit, I didn't get asked this question this week, but it seemed like such a good question to ask that I'm sure somebody out there has this question, and it was so timely that I thought it was an issue that I wanted to address. So the question is, what do you do if you lose your job? So there's a number of steps that you can take that will help the situation out. If you were fired for cause, which means you did something, then some of your options will be more difficult than if you were fired without cause, or in the case of the government employees right now, furloughed without cause, simply because there isn't the money to to fund their agencies. So whether you are fired for cause or not, don't badmouth your boss in public settings. Okay, especially social media. I see things all the time. And what you need to know is your new employer is going to look you up on social media. There's a lot of us who, before we do business with people, we look at their social media profiles and we kind of get a sense of them. So your new boss is going to look at your Facebook page. You need to just expect that. They're going to read your Twitter feed. So don't badmouth your old boss because it may really impact your situation and to it's just really bad form. Resumes have changed quite a bit from the maybe 20 years ago that you may have been trying to pull one together. You know, if you've done a resume recently, your resume's probably good. But if you've done an old resume, you really need to go online and look at how the new resumes are being written. They're very targeted towards jobs. They're not a laundry list of everything that you've done. Now, that being said, you may have left things off of your resume that you've done since the last time you put it together. So make sure it has everything that you've done that's relevant, but really make sure that your resume doesn't look tired and dated and really focuses in on the job that you're looking to get, which means you may actually create different resumes for different job applications. Just be sure, you know, always, you know, don't ever lie on a resume. Don't ever make up something that you didn't really do because they will figure it out out. And again, it's a really bad thing just in general to do. But you may need to tailor each resume for each job you're trying to get. Do not let good be the enemy of great. If you get a job offer and it's a good job, 
and it wasn't exactly what you were hoping to get, go ahead and take it because it's a whole lot easier to find a job when you have a job. I know people are holding out for their dream job and they're still unemployed. So, you know, just because you take a job does not mean it's the very last thing you're ever going to do. So what you may want to do is take the job and then keep looking for that dream job that you're trying to do. Sometimes you would be able to get a job if you had training. And I know that it's so easy, especially if you're midlife and maybe a little bit beyond to say, I am not taking another class. But really embrace training as an opportunity to learn something new. And if you have a skill that you don't have that's standing between you and your ability to get a job, fix that. And that's going to make it a lot easier. And if you embrace it as an adventure rather than being really angry that you have to do it, you're going to feel a lot better about it. In the meantime, cash flow is king. This is the time that I'm really not that worried about your net worth. You've got to control your cash flow so you can pay the bills you need to pay. So be absolutely sure you know what things cost. This is a great opportunity to take your lunch, to do some things where you're going to really try to cut down on that mindless spending and be very, very careful, budget out the money so that you'll be all right. File for unemployment. If you were fired and it wasn't for cause, you're eligible for unemployment, which is usually at least 60% of your income. Now, different states have different rules. Um, Unemployment is a state-regulated thing, not a federally regulated thing. So go ahead and file. There's no shame in it. And then, you know, you can get off of it as soon as you get the job. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Ask Peggy segment of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. And this week's question is one that I get often, and it seemed like a really good week to answer it. How do I set good financial goals? And I want to get a little bit aspirational because next Monday is Martin Luther King Day. And I think that most of our financial goals start out as dreams. And there's nothing wrong with dreaming. In fact, sometimes dreaming will give you the motivation and the drive to try to go do something better than you ever thought you could do in your life. So I'm a big believer in dreaming. But the problem with dreaming is it's not specific and it's not really very tangible sometimes. So what you want to do is start with your dream, but then turn your dream into a goal. And a goal is different from a dream in that a goal has a specific amount of money, it has a timeline to achieve it, and it makes reasonable assumptions. So rather than saying, I want to retire wealthy someday, yeah, I hear that all the time. And in fact, I've probably said it a couple of times, but that's not a financial goal. What does wealthy mean to you? So you have to define how much money in your mind makes you wealthy. Once you have that number, you need to decide how far in the future do you want to retire. You know, retiring someday is super vague. So do you mean at 55? Do you mean at 65? Do you mean at 70? What's your definition of in the future? 
Well, once you know how much it's going to cost, and once you know how far in the future is, then you want to use reasonable market assumptions. Now, you don't want to assume that the stock market's going to give you a crazy high rate of return, because it's not. And when you're looking at your stock rate of return, remember that very few people own nothing but stocks. That's very volatile, it's very risky. So if you've got some bond funds in your portfolio, you can't use an all stock return and get the right number. So you need to use a realistic rate of return that ties to your risk tolerance. Well, those are the three magic ingredients. How much money do you need? How long until you need it? And how much can you reasonably expect the market to grow each year adjusted for inflation? That will let you see what you need to do to reach your goal or your dream. Now, sometimes the goal ends up being a little unreachable. You know, I had someone who wanted to retire at 50 and they were 45 and they didn't have a lot of money saved and I kind of didn't think it would work but I ran the numbers anyway just so that I wasn't the spoil sport. So he's like, well, you know, maybe I'll retire at 60, which was a really great idea because it gave him the time to save the money that he needed. He still gets to retire early, just not by 50. So look at everything and make adjustments. Maybe you don't need as much money to live on. Maybe you want to travel less or not buy a second home or just, you know, be a little bit more careful. But just look at everything honestly. Look at everything realistically. Maybe work harder. Maybe save more. You've got a lot of options to help yourself achieve your financial goals. And when they're rooted in all of that data, you've got a much higher probability of being successful. Yes, stuff goes wrong all the time. But if you're really specific and you know what things cost, you work with a certified financial planner practitioner to make sure you're not just getting off base some way in a way you're not expecting to, then you're going to have much greater chance of reaching that financial dream and living the life you always wanted to live. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Ask Peggy segment of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. And remember, you can send a question to me at askpeggy.com on the contact page. There's a spot to type your question in, and I review those. And then I try to choose things that, that people are asking more frequently. I have had the following question many times, even among people that I've talked to before. And so I feel like this is an important enough question that I want to review it with you. And the question is, Peggy, I've heard that I can't itemize my deductions on my taxes anymore. Is that true? The answer is no, that's not true. But let me back up a little bit here. It's usually in the context of itemizing medical bills, which is now at the 7.5% of your adjusted gross income level again, or it's looking at charitable donations. I'm really very worried about this common misconception that I'm hearing because I'm afraid it's really hurting the charities where, you know, sometimes people give to charity out of the goodness of their heart and sometimes they give to charity to lower their taxes. So no, you can still itemize deductions. You can still deduct your donations to charity. 
Here's the problem. Your standard deduction has gone, if you're married, to $24,000. If you're single, it's $12,000. Losing the exemption doesn't help you out at all. It's not like that's giving you any form of credit. It's just money you don't get. So you still have to have more than $24,000 of deductible stuff in order to take the itemized deduction if you're married filing jointly. So that would include your mortgage interest up to the $750,000. That would include $10,000 state and property tax. That would include your medical. That would include your charitable donations. So it is very possible to take those deductions. They just have to add up to more money. Some people are really angry about this. Well, I can't believe I don't get to take my charitable deduction. I can't believe I don't get to itemize. Now, if you listen to the show, you know I'm not a big fan of a lot of things that go on. However, I have to say that really, if you're getting more money in the standard deduction than the itemized deduction, you're getting a bigger refund. Because they've raised the standard to 24, you get 24 whether you never were able to take a um, itemized deduction before or not. So from an individual perspective, the raising of the standard deduction limits is nothing but good. Now, I wish they hadn't um, eliminated the exemption, but that's actually a separate deal. You're probably able to take more than you were unless you had a lot of donations. What some people are doing if they can plan their deductions is they're doing a lot of charitable donation in one year and bulking things up to raise it back to the itemized level, and then they're taking the standard deduction the second year. Which, again, this is hard for charities that count on regular cash flow. I'm just hoping that people pretty much split 50-50 because the people who give will be giving twice as much as they were before because they're going to bulk it up into one year and then take the standard deduction the next year. I understand with your mortgage interest, you can't do that. With your, in fact, you really specifically can't do that because people started trying. With your property tax, the paying it early, that's still a little iffy. But from what I've heard out of the IRS is, yeah, no, you can't pay your property tax early and bulk it up into one year either. You know, I think there might be clarification there. But to the best of my knowledge, we don't have that clarification yet. So you haven't lost your ability to itemize your deductions. They've just raised the standard deduction limit so high that you probably can't get there. Now, if you're drowning in medical bills, remember that 7.5% AGI rule is in place. And so it's very likely that you can get to the itemized deduction level. So pay attention to that. Don't write it off without running the math. I had someone say, well, should I even bother looking? I said, absolutely. Why would you not bother looking? Take the time, find the deductions, add them up, do what makes the most sense for you so you can maximize everything legally that you're allowed to take. No one should pay any more tax than what is actually due. That's tax planning. And it's very important to remember that. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. 
Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Ask Peggy segment of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. And this is the section of the show where I try to address questions that either people have submitted to my website or questions that I get commonly asked. So remember, if you have a question, you can send it to askpeggy.com. That will actually default to my main website page, which is peggydoviak.com, but nobody can spell that. So askpeggy.com, and then go to the contact page, and there will be a place that you can submit your question. So I get a lot of questions about debt. And because of the payday lending story earlier in the show, I thought what I wanted to do in this section was address some of the common questions that I get about debt and how much debt is too much debt and how do you pay it off and how do you organize things. So let's start out with probably the most common question that I get about debt, which is how can I pay it off? And I know I've seen the financial books and I've seen the financial celebrities. Everybody has a theory on this, okay? There will be people who say, you know, you always pay off the highest, um, the highest interest rate. Well, that makes a lot of sense because when you're paying interest, then that's money that you're just losing to the card and it's money that you don't need to be spending and every dollar that you're paying in interest is a dollar that you're not paying down towards your principal. And so I see people say, well, you absolutely have to address the highest interest rate first. What I'm going to tell you is a little bit softer approach to that. Here's the short version. You've got to get your debt paid off. And so you need to pay off your debt in a way that is inspiring to you. I've seen people and maybe your highest interest rate card has a really big balance and you're incredibly depressed about it. And so you look at the balance, you're like, geez, there is absolutely no reason even to start because I know I can't do this. And I know some of you are shaking your heads yes right now as you're driving in your cars. So what I'm going to say is, yeah, you probably could, but if you have more motivation to pay off small balances, because oftentimes people have more than one card that has debt on it. They have more than one thing that needs to get paid off. If you feel better about getting a smaller number of debt items, so maybe you've got five credit cards and three of them have little balances and two of them have bigger balances, and you feel motivated to pay off the small balance card, then that's what you should do. Okay, I just want you to pay off your debt. And sometimes we get so prescriptive and we turn the whole thing into such a math problem. But if it's not the way that you feel motivated to pay it off, guess what? You actually won't get it done. So I want you to choose and create a plan. And if you're married, create a plan with your spouse, your significant other, or your partner. Come up with a way to get this paid off and then follow it. So if you want to pay off the little cards first and then tackle the big card, then that's what you should do. If you want to pay off the highest interest rate first, then that's what you should do. But I simply want you to create a plan and I want you to follow it. And don't feel like little payments towards your debt don't get anywhere because they do. Even a small payment 
will start bringing down that balance. And if you pay online, remember, I think you can make a payment about once a day. So you can't make multiple payments on the same day, but if you've got an extra $100 and you want to throw it on the card at that point, that's what you should do. Do something to start getting the debt paid off and you will be incredibly glad that you've done it. There's nothing wrong with using the zero interest rate cards, assuming that your actual debt ratio, or your not debt ratio, but your debt amount is going down. I see people perpetually juggle their credit card balances onto their zero interest rate cards, but they don't pay them down. Well, that doesn't do you any good. You need to pay your debt down. So the zero interest rate cards are fine. You know, be really careful. It's so easy for your money to get away from you because life gets in the way, but be paying down the debt, even if you're trying to manipulate the system. So let's look at some of the debt to income ratios that are considered acceptable. Your total debt that you should have, now that would be minimum payments on cars, that should be cards, and car payments and mortgage payments shouldn't be higher than 33% of your income. So you come up with how much you make every month and your payments towards your debt shouldn't exceed 33% of that number. The maximum amount of your mortgage should be 28%. So if your mortgage payment is more than 28% of your monthly take-home pay, that mortgage payment has, it's too high. A lot of times banks won't even loan you money higher than that ratio. So what do you do if that ratio is higher than that, especially your, your total debt? Well, start paying it down. So just start working on it. You don't want to have more than 33% at the end of the day. If you start making payments, it gives you a ratio to work towards. Then once you get to that ratio, then you keep going. You know, I don't hate mortgages. I'm not someone who says you need to buy your house with cash. I know some financial celebrities say that. What I do worry about are people who buy too big of houses and they get house poor, which means all their money is going towards their mortgage. That puts you in a bad financial situation, both to have a life outside of your mortgage, as well as the ability to pay for things that happen along the way that you're not expecting. So a conventional mortgage within the right percentage, you know how you're going to make the payment. You put 20% down. I know that's old fashioned. I know you really don't want to put that much down. But if you put that much down, you don't have to pay private mortgage insurance or PMI. That's a good thing. If you insist on going less than 20%, then put a sizable down payment down on your house. Do not get over leveraged. Do not get over financed. It will put your financial life in a lot of peril. It will really impact your your mental outlook. It will impact everything about you. And it's not a healthy place to be. But a mortgage per se isn't evil. Even a car payment that's a reasonable amount doesn't freak me out. It's the consumer debt that worries me, and that's what I want you to really try to get paid off. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Ask Peggy segment of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show, My name is Peggy Doviak, and today's question is about target date funds. The question is, Peggy, my 401k plan invested my account in something called a target date fund. 
What is it, and why did they do that? So really, to look at this question, we need to break it in half. So I'm going to address the second half of the question first, which is, why did they do that? It used to be that if you had a retirement plan, like a 401k plan at work, then you would have the money that went into your account, and the primary concern was that you didn't lose any money. So if you never made any investment decisions at all in your account, then it stayed in money market. And a money market fund is kind of like a bank account. It might pay just a little bit more interest than a bank account, but not much. So basically, when you had your 401k plan, it was like money in the bank. The problem was there was no growth and people were reaching age 65 and they'd put money into their 401k plan. They really didn't know what they were doing because remember 401k plans are not actually that old. They're kind of a new phenomenon and they forced a lot of people into the stock market who had never been there before and they really didn't want to be there and so they didn't do anything. And so now they're 65 years old. The company doesn't have a pension plan because they opted to go with the 401k. And they have a 401k that's there in cash, but they haven't had any growth. And they don't have nearly enough money to last them for retirement. So they changed the rules and said, we're going to create something called a qualified default investment alternative. Q-D-I-A. And a qualified default investment alternative is a fund that is selected by the people running the plan. This fund is supposed to be something that is age-appropriate and or balanced. So sometimes people choose a balanced fund, kind of just a generic blend of stocks and bonds as the qualified default investment. That means if you do nothing, you wind up there. So when the money goes into your account, it doesn't stay in cash, it gets invested. Well, they decided, you know, that the balanced fund is fine, but they came up with an investment product called a target date fund. And a target date fund is designed to correspond to the date of your retirement. That's your target date. So if you're very young, your target date is way in the future. If you're older, your target date is closer. And it always assumes that you're retiring at age 65. When you put a qualified default investment As a target date fund, the advantage that you give the employee is more growth when they're younger and safer when they're older, which are just tried and true investment principles that the less time you have, you know, the less risk you want to take. So they can be fairly good investments for clients, especially if clients don't have a lot of money. The problem with qualif- uh, with, um, with target date funds is not every company looks at risk the same way. So some companies' target date funds have clients in a lot of stock when they're 65 because they're looking at a 30-year time horizon until the client is 95. Others have a lot of bonds at 65 because the person isn't putting any more money into the account, so they want it to be safer. 
So if you're in a target date fund, what I want you to do is go in and look at the stock bond mix and then talk to your financial planner and see if that stock bond mix makes sense for your risk tolerance. Make sure that that fund is doing what you think it's doing because that's what's killing people in target date funds. They see it, they see the name, they look at the year, they don't go any further. Look under the hood, see what it's invested in, see if you like it. If the fund is more aggressive than you want, then you can lower the risk by choosing a fund that has a date closer to today. So if you're in a 2035 fund and it's riskier than you want, look at the asset allocation of a 2025 fund. Now you're probably going to have a more conservative allocation. If you want it to be riskier, look at funds that are going further out in the future. Those are going to have more stocks in them. You'll also want to look to see how the fund becomes more conservative over time. That's called a glide path, and you'll be able to get information from the fund company that will explain that to you so that you understand what's going on, so you understand how rapidly does your fund become conservative and how conservative does it get. You know, this isn't a conversation about asset allocation or blended funds and whether or not you want all of your investments in a fund. Those are really different questions. But if you understand the fund, you'll know you're making the decisions that you're making. You may submit personal finance questions to the Ask Peggy Facebook page and learn more at PeggyDoviak.com. And remember, prosperity is so much more than money.